So as I mentioned, we're looking at Titus chapter 2, verse 15. And in a verse that might be as unpopular in some ways as some other verses we've looked at regarding uh, God's calling to young women in, in, the, in the home. And this calling today that we're looking at is, is really this, can be summarized by this, do not disregard this authority. Do not disregard this authority. Charles Spurgeon insightfully noted that surely it needs little faith to believe when the purse is full. Think about that. It needs little faith to believe when the purse is full. What do you mean by that? Meaning when you have plenty, you can say you have faith, but your faith hasn't been tested. So it's easy to say that. I want to adapt that just a little bit this morning for the study of Titus, our study of Titus 2.15. And I'll adapt it this way. Surely it needs little faith to submit when there is full agreement with what is spoken. Surely it needs little faith to submit when there is full agreement with what is spoken. By and large, our society is a society of rebellion and is encouraging rebellion to authorities, any authorities that they disagree with. Wives are encouraged to live for themselves and disregard the leadership of their husband. Teenagers and even children are told that, that to throw off the, the leadership and authority of their parents. And our, our society and, and even governments are passing laws to, to encourage teenagers and children to have an abortion or to even go ahead and begin changing, take medical steps to change their gender with all without their permit, parents' permission. The state of California even passed laws that said health care providers cannot tell the parents what their children want to do. So that's just a, an example. Then you have issues that are going on with uh, like critical race theory, which encourages the type of thinking to, that, to, to see anybody in a position of authority as an oppressor. And if you're not in a position of authority, then you must be the oppressed. And depending on the levels of intersectionality that you have, um, it determines how how um, how badly oppressed you are. It doesn't have to be true. It just encourages this type of thinking. Encourage is encouraged in our society. And while these particular manifestations of rebellion are new, really the heart of the issue is as old as sin. Um, once people remove themselves from depending upon God for wisdom and make themselves the source of wisdom, they they go the way of Satan. And disregard the wisdom and authority of God. Now it would be really nice if um, once you were saved. That the sins of the world didn't press in upon us. And our old sins didn't plague us. But that, that's not the case. Believers are not exempt from temptation to sin. In fact I think once you become a Christian. The temptation becomes greater. Because before you were in Christ. You just gave in to that temptation uh, very early. Whereas in now that you're in, uh, in Christ. You actually resist that temptation, so the temptation has to grow to a higher level, a greater level, uh, either for you to totally resist it or before you cave into it. So in, in many ways, this, the, the battle with temptation becomes greater as a Christian. Far too many Christians and even far too many churches make themselves to be the standard of righteousness and therefore make themselves to be more authoritative than the word of God. Most professing Christians would not say this out loud, but their actions speak louder than their words. 
And when people don't like what God says, they look for ways to justify their own wisdom as the correct view. Look, we, we all ha- have done this. We've all been guilty of this. So this is not the pastor pointing fingers at you. The fingers point both ways. When, when we don't like something, we, that what, what God's word says, we, there's a tendency in all of us to justify our own behavior. Uh, for example, in 1 Timothy 2.12 along with the qualifications of elders that are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2, these passages clearly instruct us that elders, pastors, and preachers are to be only biblically qualified men. These passages aren't difficult. They're not debatable passages. People make them debatable passages, and they twist words, and they, they try to make words mean things that they clearly do not mean. But they're not, they're not passages of Scripture that we would... We would classify as difficult. They're only difficult because society doesn't like them. You know, the implication is that God does not women to be pastors and elders, period. It's very clear. But our society revolts against this. The, the implications, really, not only does God not want women to be pastors and elders, but let's just go one step further because the word of God does. The implication is that God detests when people disregard his word. That only men should be elders and pastors, and that only men should teach and lead the local church. Yet people who want to acknowledge women as teachers of men and even pastors and elders justify their, their view by, for example, accusing Paul to be a chauvinist. Uh, we've heard that recently in some personal conversations, not in this church, um, just to clarify. But I, I've heard that excuse used time and time again. Paul was just a, a male chauvinist when he wrote that. Really? So, number one, it doesn't say too much of your view of the Apostle Paul. But number two, um, what does that say regarding your view of actually Scripture? You might call yourself an evangelical, and yet when you say such things, you demean the Scriptures themselves. If Paul's letters really represent the views of a male chauvinist, then then how can we believe anything the Apostle Paul wrote? Right? The Apostle Paul wrote some passages that, are, that, that those who support women as pastors and teachers love too. The same people who are quick to affirm Ephesians 2, 8, 9 about the gospel and, and Galatians 3, 28 about there being no uh, man or woman, uh, you know, slave, uh, gent, slave and free man, Gentile and Jew, and... and uh, uh, male and female in Christ, they vehemently reject 1 Timothy 2.12 and 1 Corinthians 14.34. How can they accept one while affirming the other? Well, simply because one agrees with their views and the other one does not. And they have, they have uh, caused their thinking and, and they've justified their behavior uh, in, their, in their own minds. They themselves have become judges of Scripture standing in judgment of Scripture rather than submitting themselves to Scripture. And my goal this morning isn't to tackle the fallacies of the arguments in support of women pastors or women preachers, but to tackle the prideful spirit of rebellion that lies lurking in the shadows of our lives, ready to show its ugly head at the smallest objection to something taught from the Word of God. We are so quick to elevate our own opinions to the disregard of God's Word. And this this has occurred in the human race ever since Eve and Adam doubted God's word. 
Satan comes in, casts some kind of shadow of doubt upon what God has said, and then the human being thinks that, that it has the intellectual power to be able to judge whether God's word is correct and right or even more insane, to judge what parts of God's word are correct and right and which parts are incorrect and wrong. It's pure insanity. And thankfully, God knows this about us and still chose to send his son to us. And he still gives redemption to redeem us from this. God, in fact, gives us a a warning about this in Titus 2.15. It's a kind warning and a reminder not to disregard the supreme authority that accompanies the faithful preaching of his word. Let's read together Titus 2. Titus 2, beginning at verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, being kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adore in the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. In Titus 2.15, the Lord provides us with six compelling reasons why you and I must not disregard the authority that comes with faithful preaching of God's word. Six compelling reasons why you must not disregard the, the authority that comes with the faithful preaching of God's word. The first one we find is, is really in, the, in that first phrase in verse 15, these things. And that is the faithful preacher brings you the word of God. The first reason you're not to ignore it is the faithful preacher brings you the word of God. Titus was commanded to preach these things. What does these things refer to? Well, look at verse 1 a moment where Paul instructs Titus. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then in verse 15, these things. So the, the, word, the, the reference to things there is forming a, an inclusio. It's encapsulating all that's been said in this paragraph. So it, these things uh, immediately refers to uh, the instructions that Paul has given Titus to teach and instruct from verses 2 uh, through 14. 
At the same time, there's a broader reference to the things already mentioned, the things that Paul already mentioned in chapter 1, the instructions already given, and the things that will be mentioned in chapter 3, where you see he goes immediately into uh, reminding, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, and he, and he goes on. So there are many commentators who see verse 15 as sort of a hinge verse. Not only is it wrapping up what we've talked about in chapter 2, but then it's, it's flowing into chapter 3. And as we shall see, these things ultimately refers to the entire word of God, to, it, to the written word of God. So the preacher can only preach with authorities, we'll, we'll see, when he preaches the word of God. And the word of God must be spoken with authority, authority to exhort, authority to reprove, authority to let no one disregard you. Now, what Paul says here in his reference to, to these things is, is sort of similar to what he told uh, Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the word. So here in Titus 2.15, he's not saying, he's, he's not referencing the word directly, but he's using the pronoun these things to refer to the things that the Lord instructed Paul to teach. And these things are inspired and ultimately from God. So it is a command to preach the word. Preachers must guard against preaching their opinions or personal preferences as if it were authoritative like the Word of God. The drive to preach the Word and only the Word in an authoritative way captures the heart and soul of what we call expository preaching. That's, that's the point of expository preaching. Not that you hear the preacher, but that you hear the Word of God. Like we sung before, speak, O Lord. We're asking God to speak from his word. He only does that when the preacher gets out of the way and explains the text and brings it, helps you understand it and understand the implications of it. It is not the preacher's um, uh, prerogative to, to preach his own opinion. There are times when I have offered my opinion and I always try to clearly let you know this is my um, speculation or this is my opinion or this is my recommendation when, when those things are offered, take it or leave it. That, that's, uh, it might be helpful to you and it might not be. They're not inspired. But when we deal with the inspired text, it comes with authority. Listen to Sidney Gradanus explain the necessity of expository preaching to the faithful fulfillment of the task of preaching. It's a kind of a longer quote, but, but hang in there with me. He says, the necessity of expository preaching shows itself most clearly when the question of authority is raised. By whose authority do preachers preach? Whose word do they bring? If preachers bring their own word, the congregation may listen politely, but has every right to disregard the sermon as just another person's opinion. If contemporary preachers preach with authority, however, the congregation can no longer dismiss their sermons as merely personal opinions, but must respond to them as authoritative messages. The only proper authority for preaching is divine authority, the authority of God's heralds, his ambassadors, his agents. Heralds and ambassadors do not speak their own word, but that of their sender. Contemporary preachers, similarly, if they, if they wish to speak with divine authority, 
must speak, must speak not their own word, but that of their sender. And he continues, Accordingly, if preachers wish to preach with divine authority, they must proclaim the message of the inspired scriptures. For the scriptures alone are the word of God written. The scriptures alone have divine authority. If preachers wish to preach with the divine authority, they must submit themselves, their thoughts and opinions to the word, to the scriptures and echo the word of God. Preachers are literally to be ministers of the word. Thus, preaching with authority is synonymous with true expository preaching. At the heart, expository preaching is not just a method, but a commitment, a view of the essence of preaching. This underlying commitment, in turn, is bound to reveal itself in a method in which preachers tie themselves to the Scriptures, and as heralds of Christ, seek to proclaim only what the Scriptures proclaim. I really appreciate that last phrase, where preachers tie themselves to the Scriptures and only proclaim what the Scriptures proclaim. So the, the, the first reason that, that you should not disregard this authority is that the faithful preacher is is preaching the word of God. The second reason is this. The faithful preacher teaches you the word of God. Just a slight emphasis there. Look at, look at the next word. He says, these things speak. These things speak. Titus was commanded to teach and provide instruction. The word speak here is given as a present active imperative. That is, it this was not an option. Titus was commanded to do this, and he was to do it in an ongoing, repetitive fashion. It's not an optional part of Titus's ministry, of Titus's responsibility while ministering to the churches on the island of Crete. It is something that is, that is ongoing, and it is representative of the pastor's calling today. The pastor, the faithful pastor, must teach God's word. So the word speak refers to the vocal instruction in the Word of God. It's, it's really a general word that has some, some broad meanings, but in this context, it's speaking to about vocal communication. It, it, the word can be translated to make vocal utterance, to talk, to discourse, to make announcement, to make declaration, to address, to reveal, and to preach. Now, there is a different Greek word for preaching. That's not this word. But, but in this context, that, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about preaching and teaching in kind of a general sense. And the fact that Paul uses the word speak, again, in verses 1 and 15, uh, reinforces the idea of that inclusio that I mentioned, that paragraph of thought. It's a, it's a unit of thought tied together by the word speak and also by the reference to, to these things. In this context, the word speak uh, connotes the idea of teaching, as, as John MacArthur explains. He says, speak the word speak, points to the pastor's responsibility to preach, announce, reveal, and disclose with the intent of making clear God's truth so that those who hear may understand. Careful and faithful biblical preaching gives them knowledge of that truth. So God wants people to know his word, and that requires teaching. Teaching of the word of God is one of the most important tasks of the faithful pastor and elder. In, in Acts 6-4, we see the example that the apostles set in that they devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, to prayer and the ministry of the word. There's lots of responsibilities that a faithful pastor has, but these two are to be priority in pastors' lives. And teaching, uh, teaching is, is obviously included with this ministry of the word. Now, teaching the word of God assumes that one knows the word of God. 
and one can't know the Word of God without studying the Word of God. And, and thus, before one can teach, he must study. The studying of, of God's Word requires um, time. It requires hard work. There, there is no way that someone can faithfully preach the Word without studying the Word. There are so-called pastors today, some of them leading very quite large churches, who I would charge are not really pastors. They're merely masquerading as pastors because they don't spend any significant time studying the Scriptures. Many of these men purchase their sermons and have admitted to not spending much time at all in the scripture before they go teach what they were handed by uh, a research team. That's not being a pastor. That's neglecting one of the primary calls that pastors are called to do. The ministry of the, of the word requires us to teach. But before we can teach, we must study. We must know. Pastors must devote themselves to the ministry of the word, both in the private study and the public proclamation of the word. So men who refuse to study or don't devote themselves to the study of God's word, they are, they, they are leaders of churches, but they are not pastors by biblical definition. It's an interesting story I, I like to relate to you it's, uh, uh, that I heard when I was in seminary. An Italian pastor came to do a year-long intensive study at the Master Seminary. And during that time, he was asked to preach one of the uh, chapel messages. And, he, and he, before he started, he gave a little bit of background about himself. He told of what I believe was his first encounter with John MacArthur. Now, he met him in Italy. He met MacArthur just prior to a conference in Italy in which MacArthur was scheduled to teach. And this pastor was also to serve as the translator for MacArthur's sermon. And during that time, MacArthur turned to him and, and, and said, this is the time beforehand, just, just, just them. He turned to him and said, so, so what do you think I should teach? Now, this pastor was quite disappointed by that question. And the reason was this. He had heard about Pastor MacArthur's preparation and how, how much Pastor MacArthur spends studying the Word of God. And here he was asking a question what it, what he should teach it kind of conveyed that well macarthur was just kind of wing going to wing this one that he hadn't studied so this pastor recounted uh, how much he had heard about macarthur's studying so hearing this question brought some disappointment to his heart but that image um that the image that was shattered by that question was quickly rebuilt when MacArthur began to preach. Because as MacArthur began to preach, the word was clearly unfolded and instructed and guided. And though he didn't have a mound of notes that he was going by, it was very clear to this interpreter and pastor, as well as to the congregation that was listening, that MacArthur had spent hours in his study. He knew the text. And simply from using the scriptures and the outline, perhaps even in his Bible, he unfolded the text. And hence, this pastor wanted to come study for a year there to learn how to study, how to study and to preach like that. The point of that is this. Men must study the word of God. And if, they, and if men study the word of God and, and teach you the word of God, then you may not disregard that word. Right? 
If you ignore and disregard the preaching of the word of God, you will miss the vital instruction in the word of God that you need to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. There are so many people today who are professing believers and, and many they, they could be genuine believers, but they're professing to be believers, but they're simply ignorant of the word of God. There's so many passages that they're ignorant of and they live their lives in direct disobedience to the word of God because they're ignorant of God's word. They haven't been instructed. Well, the third compelling reason why you must not disregard this authority is that faithful preachers, a faithful preacher not only teaches you, but he exhorts you to believe and obey the word of God. He exhorts you to believe and obey the word of God. Titus was commanded to exhort the church to believe and obey the scriptures. The word exhort, like the word speak, is given in the present imperative. Again, it's a command and it's a command to keep doing it in a repetitive fashion. And, and the Greek word here, exhort, has a large range of meanings. It's actually a compound word that means to, to call alongside. And um, to, to call along one side with the implication that the one called alongside would provide encouragement and help to the one who called him. It, this word is related with the word paraclete, that is translated helper, that is used both of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit. The word is used in the New Testament, this word exhort, with, the, with positive kind of connotations of encouraging someone in need of help. So depending on the context, it can be translated to admonish, to exhort, to beg, to entreat, to console, to encourage, to comfort, to persuade, and to strengthen by consolation. One dictionary notes that the word exhort combines the idea of exhorting and comforting and encouraging. Combining the ideas of exhorting and comforting and encouraging. Again, don't miss the, the positive flavor of this command, of this action. In Titus 1.9, one of the requirements of an elder is that he be able to exhort in sound doctrine. It's the same word. That is, he must be able to encourage people to believe and to obey the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Again, uh, MacArthur provides a helpful explanation. He says, exhort carries the ideas of beseeching, entreating, and pleading. It involves more than simply stating and explaining the truth. The preacher who exhorts and seeks by every means at his disposal, at his disposal to persuade and encourage his hearers not simply to understand, but to believe God's truth, unquote. So it's the idea that, that, that speaking or teaching is relaying that information. Exhortation is then, is then encouraging people to actually believe what, is, what God's word says and to obey, to, to believe and to obey. If, if the faithful um, pastor will exhort you to believe, uh, then you, he will also exhort you to apply and obey the teaching of Scripture. Um, we see a bit of a flavor of the word exhortation in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Just listen to that, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, now the word exhortation is not used in that passage, but it carries the flavor of, of what the command of exhortation is. You see that there. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. So there's not, there's not a rebuke in that. This is, an, this is an urging. This is a positive urging. Come to Christ. Be reconciled. 
We beg you, please do this. And we also see the idea of exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 1 to 2. I'm going to turn your attention to that. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Thessalonians 2. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 to 12. Again, there are times where the word exhortation is used, exhort is used here. But I want you to get the, the, the flavor. Exhortation doesn't just mean that you're using the word exhortation, like I exhort you. There's lots of ways to exhort someone to believe without using the word. And we see that here. Begin at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. You see that that speaking, that authoritative communication of the message which God gave. He was faithfully proclaiming it. And he wasn't doing it to please men because it obviously wasn't pleasing men. He was being persecuted because of this. But his focus was on pleasing God. Verse 5, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. What is he coming? He's coming to serve them. He's not coming as, as a high and lifted up apostle for people to kiss his ring, right? Or to wash his feet or to serve him. He is coming to serve, much in the same way Christ came to serve. Verse 7, but we prove to be gentle among you. Notice this, this kind of exhortation here, the, the idea of a mother. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart, you, impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you have become very dear to us. You see, that's, that, that is a sign of a faithful pastor. He's pouring himself into you. He's not just communicating the message, but he has such care and love for you that he's urging you to believe the message that is preached. Verse 9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as to not be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So notice the idea there. He pulls the imagery of a mother, her tender care, urging her children to do what is right, caring for them, nurturing them. And then he appeals to the father's care, a father who has taught his children and and, and as they grow up now is now urging them to obey what he has taught them. These are beautiful passages that really help us understand really the intent of this, this exhortation in the word of God. So the faithful pastor will exhort you to believe, to apply, and to obey the teaching of Scripture. And if you disregard this authority, you will put yourself in danger. Because as James one twenty one says, those who disregard um, are in danger of being merely hearers of the word who delude themselves. You see, it's entirely possible just to hear the word of God, think you know it, but then you're not applying it. 
But you think you know it and, and you just move on thinking that you actually know the word of God. But James says, if you're not doing the word of God, you're just a hearer who's deluded himself. Right? God wants you to be a doer of the word. And there are times when you might need your pastor's exhortations. So if if that time comes, do not disregard it. Do not take it as um, criticism that is meant to, uh, to for your harm or uh, to, to even rebuke you. This is this is a positive exhortation, right? So many times when uh, a pastor or elder has to say anything to someone, they either react to really defensively, um, or they'll just take it as uh, as as criticism and that. Um, the pastor or elder uh, thinks very negatively of them. But, but that's not the flavor here. This exhortation is, um, is, is to do it. He says, it's a pastor saying, I've taught you, now believe and do. And, and it's the idea of, of, of really just compelling uh, people in a positive way, encouraging them to, to move on with obedience to the word of God, believing and obeying the word of God. We... we disregard this exhortation to our own peril. The fourth compelling reason why you must not disregard this authority is the next word. The faithful preacher reproves you. You see that, and if you go back to Titus, it's the word reproof. Titus was commanded by God through Paul to reprove to reprove. Again, this the word reprove here, like speak and exhort, is in the present tense imperative. It, it, this is something that's to be an ongoing task, and it's not optional. No one likes confrontation, pastors included. Right? If someone likes confrontation, um, they're likely sinning and have a, a sinful desire of confrontation. So this isn't this isn't something that uh, someone should like to do, but is it a required task? The word reprove means to convict, to refute, to correct, um, even in the sense of correction, to admonish. Not, not in the sense of encouraging, but to correcting. It, it carries the idea of exposing error to try to bring the person to truth. Now, this word is used in Matthew 18:15 in the in the context of church discipline and this is a command that goes to all believers if your brother sins go and show him his fault in private if he listens to you you've you have won your brother the word show there is is the same greek word that's translated as reproof here in Titus 2:15 so it's the idea of showing someone their fault right in Luke 3, verses 18 to 20, we see the word used, it, and it's translated reprimanded. I'll just read that to you, Luke 3. And this is in the context of talking about John the Baptist and Herod. Uh, Luke 3, being at verse 18. So, with many, uh, with many other exhortations, John the Baptist preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodus, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked up John in prison. So one of the reasons that John the Baptist was beheaded is because he reprimanded, he dare reprimand, the leader of Israel because he had his brother's wife and because of the wicked things which Herod had done. You know, just this, uh, just by way of commentary, this is one of the roles of Christians. This is one of the roles of churches is 
to point out error. But of course, nobody likes to be corrected. Actually, I don't, like I said, I don't think anybody likes to give that kind of correction. But it is very needed. It, it, it's needed because there are times where we, we go our own way or we depend on our own thinking. And, and again, this isn't, this isn't the person who just, who just by uh, accident goes their own way. To that person, you just instruct them in the Word of God and, and you exhort them to believe what's there. This is the person who has heard the Word of God. They've been exhorted to, to believe and obey, but now they're, they're going their own way. They're not listening. One dictionary explains that the word uh, explains the word refute this way that is this to show someone his sin and to summon him to repentance to show someone his sin and summon him to repentance you see it's not it's not a, a condemnation about going to hell it's to show them their sin and to summon them to repentance where they can be forgiven grace can be extended God can help them to become obedient to the word. Now, that same dictionary explains that, that this, this uh, refutation, when you're refuting someone's sin, may be a private matter between two people, as in Matthew eighteen fifteen, the verse I read to you. But it can, may also be a congregational affair under the leader, as in the pastoral. So in this particular passage in Titus 2, 15, some of that, some of that refuting air needs to happen from the pulpit. Now, uh, as you have noticed with my own preaching, we don't mention people by name. So you won't see that unless there's um, uh, we're taking someone to the final step of um, the third and fourth step of church discipline. But there's a time to refute a certain type of behavior or a certain type of thinking or a certain type of, of theological error. That needs to happen. And it's interesting that this work of refuting is something, when you do it, when the pastor does it, he is actually aligned with the work of the Holy Spirit. Because we're told that, that, the, that this refutation is also a work of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 8. And it's also a ministry of Christ in his community, Revelation three nineteen. So it's not something that we like, not something we desire, either to give or receive, but it is something so needed Sometimes we need that confrontation of our sins in order to do what is right. We need that. William Barclay, commentator William Barclay, explains it this way. He says, the eyes of the sinner must be open to his sin, which, by the way, is impossible unless the Holy Spirit's working. So you can confront sin, but whether the person sees it or not is really the Holy Spirit's work. The eyes of the sinner must be open to his sin. The mind of the misguided must be led to realize its mistake. The heart of the heedless must be stabbed broad awake. The Christian message is no opiate to send men to sleep. It is no comfortable assurance that everything will be all right. It is rather the, the blinding light which shows men themselves as they are and God as he is. Think about that last statement. It is rather the blinding light which shows men themselves as they are and God as he is. You know, when someone shines a very bright flashlight in your eyes, that's very uncomfortable. Very, I mean, you, you clo instinctively close your eyes. It is not a pleasant thing. Well, spiritually, that's what's happening when the word of God is brought to bear on someone's disobedience to the word of God. And how you respond to the word of God is so critical. You can respond 
in, in submission and obedience and humility, or you can respond with defensiveness, which then hardens your heart. And note how the word, this word is used in John 3, 19 to 21. I'm going to read that for you. This is the Gospel of John, chapter 3, being at verse 19. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. It's that idea of, of exposure. Right? We don't like to be exposed, and understandably so. But when you are exposed by the word of God, do not neglect that authority. Don't slough it off. Don't just say it's the pastor's opinion. If it, it really is his opinion, right, you're free to disregard. But if the word of God commands you to do something, you ignore it to your peril. To your peril. If you disregard this authority, you imperil yourself by following the pattern of many hard-hearted people who didn't listen to the correction that was intended for their good. Didn't, didn't God warn a good number of people um, before they fell into, uh, into sin? And yet they didn't listen. It is during times of reproof that we must heavily rely upon wisdom of God. To not rely on our wisdom, but to rely upon the wisdom of God. In fact, to take refuge in the wisdom of God. So you do that by saying, Lord, this seems right to me, but your word says this other thing is right. I submit. I don't understand it. Why? Your will is the right way, but I trust it. it this, this really carries the heart of, of what we're saying. Uh, listen to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. It's good for you. Not pleasant, but good and healthy. Right? If someone falls into sin, we need to rescue them. And that's the primary of the pastor's job. But again, if you go back to Matthew 18, it's every member's job. If you see your brother in sin, it is your job to go and show him his fault in private. Right? And, it, and if he listens, you've won him over and that process goes no further. So God intends this for our good. I mean, can you think about it? Use a kind of an analogy that might help us think through that. The, the police are responding. Their mission is to respond to an incident. So when they get an incident, call of a robbery, armed robbery, they go and investigate it. And let's say that one of the police officers gets shot. He's down. Right? Then... It would be crazy for the other police officers just to ignore the fact that he's down. He needs help. But what if no one were to go to them? They'd just say, oh, we got to get the bad guy. That guy, he can, 
You know, he made a mistake, and let's say he did. He got shot. It's his fault. That, of course, no police department is ever going to respond that way. Right? The mission changes the moment the officer goes down. The first mission was capture the bad guy. When, he, when the officer goes down, the mission changes. Rescue the police officer. Second to that is capture the bad guy. That's how we should respond as Christians. Right? We, we've been um, inoculated to think that ignoring someone's sin means loving them, caring for them. But when you see someone in sin, I want you to think about that police officer who's going to bleed out to death if someone doesn't intervene. So it doesn't mean the person will respond or want your help, but it's our duty to do that. And and that is a, a task that God commands the pastor to do. So do not disregard that if it comes your way. The fifth reason you must not disregard this authority is this. We find this. He says there, reprove with all authority. Speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. So the faithful minister preaches not with his own authority, of which I will tell you I have none, but the, he preaches with God's authority. Titus was commanded to speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. And the Greek word authority can also be translated as commandment or command. That helps you understand. It's, it's, this is not just someone who's sitting in an authoritative position or position of authority who, who doles out like suggestions or recommendations. This is per somebody who is in a position of authority. Again, not because the preacher is, is all that great uh, as far as great authority, but, but to understand that is, he speaks with the authority of God. The one in authority gives commands. That's the idea. And, and this is, notice the extent of it. With all authority. One commentator translated the pastor's duty as to speak and exhort and reprove with full authority. Full authority? Yes. With the authority of God. The highest authority in the land. There is no higher. And again, I'm, I appreciate MacArthur's explanation of it. I'll just quote that. The preacher is in the position of commanding people. We don't use the word very often with regard to any kind of ministry or any kind of teaching of the word of God. We are somewhat reluctant to put ourselves in the position of a commander. He's speaking to pastors who is commanding people to respond by hearing, believing and acting upon what we say. But that is precisely what the Apostle Paul tells Titus to do. Command. And again, by way of application, you're not a pastor. I understand that. But when you preach the gospel, you invite people to respond, but you also command them to respond because it's a command of God that they respond to the gospel. God is commanding them to believe and repent of their sins because of the day of judgment that is coming. It, it, it's important to note that the faithful preacher is one who must speak and exhort and reprove with all command. Is another way to, to translate that. The preacher is to minister the word of God in a commanding way. Not because he has any authority of his own, but he ministers with the authority and the command of God. D. Edmund Hebert summarizes this point well. He says, The pastor must perform these duties with all authority, for the message is apostolic and authentic, and its authority must be stressed. The gospel must not be presented as an optional opinion to be accepted or rejected as its hearers may please. The minister's authority rests in the nature of his message. He is not raised above the truth, but the truth above him. 
The type of authority, beloved, the type of authority that the Word of God has is the same authority that Jesus Christ has, who is God Himself. We read some of this in, in Mark chapter 11. Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus taught with authority. Jesus cleaned the temple with authority. And, and the, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees were asking, by what authority do you do this? Right? And we read that passage that he would not tell them because he wouldn't answer their question. But it was, it was obvious. Who can clean, clean the temple but God himself? Christ operated with that kind of authority. Now, MacArthur notes that the preacher is called to accurately interpret and proclaim Scripture with sympathy, with compassion, and humility. But he is also has the charge, the divine charge, to present biblical truth with strong authority, commanding God's people to hear, believe, and obey God's word, unquote. So understand, there are passages of Scripture where, that are not quite as clear as what we would want to have. And with those, yes, it's much more difficult. to You, you really can't preach anything uh, authoritatively. But with the predominance of Scripture, it's clear. Well, there's not, it, there aren't a lot of debates about it. So the word must be preached in a commanding way. Now, people don't like that. And I think that's one of the primary reasons or primary complaints against people like Pastor MacArthur. He's not the only one. But understand, beloved, if MacArthur is doing his job, as any faithful pastor is doing his job, he must speak with authority. Now, he can't do that if he doesn't study. He's got to study the text. He's got to be convinced that the text actually says that. But once, once he gets to the meaning of the text, he's commanded by God to speak authoritatively. He isn't, he, he isn't to offer this as a mere opinion. Again, there are debatable sections of Scripture that are not as clear as what we would like that we can debate about. But there are so many clear sections of Scripture that we cannot debate about. It's wrong to debate about it. It's wrong to, to disregard that authority. The Word of God is to be preached with authority. You know, where pastors delve into speculation or express opinions, you're free to take it or leave it. It's, it's, it's of no big deal. And to a mature spiritual man, uh, he can offer you a recommendation. You can, you can you know, um, not take his recommendation and it, that doesn't injure him any. Okay? Understand that no pastor has any authority outside the word of God. That's where the authority lies. Now let's quickly look at the sixth compelling reason you must not disregard this authority. And it fits in with everything we've said. The faithful preacher ministers with God's voice. And, and we see this in that last phrase, let no one disregard you. Titus was told to not let anyone disregard him. Again, this is another present active imperative. It's a command. It's not optional. It's not something that Titus could take or leave. Uh, to disregard uh, can mean to, to look down on or to despise. This word is only used here in, in the New Testament. But Paul said something similar to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. Paul commands Timothy to let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Titus was commanded to let no one disregard or despise him. Notice the extent of the command. No one, not a one. 
is allowed to disregard the preaching of the word that Titus or any other faithful pastor provides. This is a command to not allow anyone in the church to disregard what is taught, because what is taught is taught indirectly by God through the pastor. In this way, the minister's voice becomes God's voice. So if a, if a, if a pastor is being faithful to the text, when you hear his voice, you are hearing the voice of God, not not the audible voice. I'm sure God's voice when he speaks sounds a lot better than mine, a lot more commanding than mine. But the content is what we're referring to. Again, if I express my own opinion in a sermon, feel free to disregard it. If I express my speculation or my, my best educated guess on a matter not clearly addressed by Scripture, feel free to disregard it. But if I preach the high and holy scriptures accurately, faithfully, expositing the text, then you must not disregard what I preach. This is the attitude that the Bereans had. The Bereans got this, right? In Acts 17, 11, we're told that, that the Bereans received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Right? So, you don't have to believe something just because I say it. In fact, I'd say don't believe something just because I say it. Look at the Word of God. And if what I'm saying aligns with the Word of God, then you must believe it. You disregard it to your own peril. Now, what does it mean that, that Titus was to let no one disregard? That is, he was to go and refute those. Those within the church who didn't listen to that to that, um, that warning call, that call to repentance, were to be taken through the process of church discipline. That is, the church was not allowed to let people just disregard the word of God. People were either going to become obedient to the word of God, or they would need to be put out of the church. We do that with all tenderness and care. We do it with love. We do that with authority. The authority of Christ himself. You know, the passage that people usually reference with in regards to prayer, they say when two or three people are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst, and they think, oh, that, that's a reference to prayer. No, it's not. It's actually in reference to church discipline. So you can look at the context. It's the context of church discipline. So where two or three agree together, that is, these witnesses, the two or three witnesses, agree that someone is in sin, right? They are to confront that sin. And it's as if Christ is confronting that sin. That's how serious it is. Now, leaders have given their congregants lots of, reader, lots of reasons um, not to listen to their authority. One I'd like to deal with this morning is the abuse of authority. So here we're just dealing with one common objection to listening to authority, and that is abuse of authority. Abuse of authority, quite clearly, is a disqualified authority. Anybody who abuses his authority is showing himself to be disqualified from the pastorate. The word abusive is probably too general a term because it can easily be misused. Faithful preachers and teachers must, must preach authoritatively, and there are times where pastors must rebuke severely. Scripture tells us that. Rebuke severely. That doesn't mean rebuke unkindly, but it means rebuke severely. So we need to be careful that we don't equate authoritative messages or severe rebukes with abuse. Authority that is abusive 
is authority that manipulates, that hurts, that uses or takes advantage takes advantage of those over whom they have authority, those who, who flatter with their lips in order to get something from those under their authority. An abusive leader, as I said, is not biblically qualified to be a pastor and elder and should be removed. For far too long, churches have ignored the biblical qualifications of elders and appointed men to the office of pastor and elder who do not belong there. And they do that to the, to, to the ruin of their own church. It's not surprising that these men misuse authority when they're not qualified to be there in the first place. A misuse of authority, though, does not negate your need to heed and listen to true authority. A misuse of authority does not give you permission to become an authority unto yourself. Abuses in authority must be dealt with in a God-honoring manner. And as I said, a man who is abusive in his authority needs to be removed from pastorate. How do we deal? Secondary issue I'd like to deal with. How do you deal when you have criticisms and concerns? Because lots of times a message like this can come across that, well, we, we, can't, uh, we can't question anything the pastor says uh, without feeling like we're going to be rebuked or corrected or, or put under church discipline. Well, here's what I'd like to, to recommend for you. First of all, when you have a criticism or a concern about any pastor, elder, first thing to do is to pray for them. Pray for them. And pray for wisdom to respond in a Christ-honoring way. And here I'm assuming that we're not talking about a sin, although it could be a sin issue. I'm just talking about a criticism on how things are done or you have a concern about something that's not being addressed or about how something is being addressed. So first, pray. Pray for them, pray for yourself. Secondly, discern whether your concern or criticism is a doctrinal issue. Is it a philosophical issue? That is, it's not really about the doctrine so much as how that doctrine is, is carried out. Or is it a preferential issue? You know, some churches um, um, have, um, uh, you know, Flags, we have lots of flags, so I'm sure nobody has flags, an issue with flags in this church. But um, there are churches where they have an issue, like if someone were to take down the American flag in a church building, but there's no biblical man for it. But, but again, this is the kind of conflict that can happen, and, and your preference is to have the American flag. Someone else's preference might be they could take it or leave it. It doesn't really matter. And so these, these preferential matters, lots of times, can cause a lot of conflict. So if it's a preferential matter, um, you, you have to submit that to, to your leadership and just say, well, you can express your opinion. I, I would prefer it, but, but don't, don't, bring, uh, don't bring that criticism as if that's the only way. In other words, try to objectively look at your concern or criticism and ask, is it a doctrinal issue? In which case it becomes more important. Is it more of a, a philosophical issue, how that doctrine is carried out, or is it a more preferential issue? And thirdly, in a spirit of humility, respectfully raise your criticism or concern to an elder. And don't try to pit one elder against another. Right? So right now we don't have multiple elders, so you can't do that. But um, <laughs> I don't think you'd want to anyway. But there's a tendency to, to want to go or find a receptive audience. Uh, this is done in the court systems today where people go shopping for the right judge when they want a certain decision. Um, if it's more the liberal side, they look for a liberal-leaning judge. And, 
if they're more on the right side, they look for a right-leaning judge. All right, so it's called judge shopping. So don't go looking for, you know, don't go elder shopping to find one that's receptive um, to your concern. And certainly don't gossip or malign them because that's clearly sin on your part. If your criticism or concern relates to one particular elder, start by going directly to him with the matter. As I said before, pastors and elders uh, are men who, who have got to be able to handle some degree of criticism or concern without taking it personal. Or even if it is a, a personal criticism, they have to have some thick skin to be able to deal with some of that. You know, bring the matter. If, if, the, if the issue isn't addressed by him or isn't responded to the way that's uh, in a satisfactory manner to yourself, then, then you can go and, and get another elder involved. Uh, in our case, you'd get another leader involved, one of our uh, leadership team involved, Scott or, or Dave or, or Charlie. You, you get them involved to, to help um, get, it, get this situation resolved. But remember that in preferential issues, you are called to submit um, to, to the elders, to the leadership's decision. And, and uh, at the end of the day, submit to what you can biblically submit to. Right? So again, you're guided by the word of God. As I said, biblically qualified elders and pastors need to have thick skin and humility to receive criticism, looking for the areas where we need to grow. I remember MacArthur often saying that, and no matter how far off the criticism is, there's usually some thread of truth there, something to be learned, something to be gleaned, something you could do better. So that's where pastors need to focus on. I'd also like to deal with, just by way of warning, as um, sources of mistaken authority that you must disregard. I already mentioned, you know, like pastor's opinion or, or sanctified uh, speculation about the white pages of Scripture. But, but here I'm, I'm taking it a step further. Because some people um, actually lead churches these using this type of misguided or mistaken authority. The first one is personal authority. And this material is adapted from John MacArthur. I've heard other, Kerry Hardy. I've heard several pastors go through this. But I think it's helpful. The first mistaken authority you must disregard in spiritual matters is personal authority. Pastors... Uh, what to say leaders of churches sometimes operate on personal authority. They believe that they have the right and authority to dictate everything. Now, cults often operate this way, but sometimes even churches, pastors, leaders can be guilty of, of uh, exercising this kind of mis mistaken authority. They, they feel like they have the authority to force their opinions and personal preferences upon the church. They have the authority to dictate exactly all the details of how things are done. But keep in mind, pastors are not kings. They are shepherds. Or better put, they're sheepdogs working for the good shepherd. I think that term, though not biblical, accurately reflects the humility that a, that a pastor needs to always keep before him. You're nothing but a sheepdog. The good shepherd's telling you what to do. Just listen to his commands. All right. So the first type of Authority we need, mistaken authority we need to disregard is just that personal authority. Secondly, ecclesiastical authority. Ecclesiastical authority. That is, some church leaders believe they have a higher authority than the Word of God. The Roman Catholic Church, Church's Magisterium, believes that they have the authority above the written scriptures and that they stand in judgment of the written scriptures. They believe that only they can rightly and authoritatively teach the scriptures. 
Many cults also hold to this false notion that they alone can determine what comprises the scriptures. That's nonsense. God has already determined what the scriptures are. All the church can do is to recognize what God has done. Biblical leaders, biblical pastors understand that the written word of God stands in judgment of them and not the other way around. The third type of mistaken authority that you must disregard is intellectual authority. That is, some people lead and teach by their own intellectual authority. They, they think that their education and intellect gives them the ability to decide what scriptures are true and thus authoritative. So many of the liberal churches are led by people like this. They use their intellect to decide what scriptures they'll accept and which scriptures they won't accept. Our, our intellect, our God-given intellect helps us understand the scriptures, but our intellect does not have authority over God's word to decide what is true and what is not. You may not understand um, how a particular passage is true or why it's true, but you're called to accept it as true because the, the scriptures are inspired, the very words of God, and you are to accept them, whether your intellect can grasp them or not. The fourth area of mistaken authority that I want to bring is, is probably the most common mistaken authority that we evangelicals have to deal with, and that is experiential authority experiential authority. This is the idea that something is true because someone experienced it. The modern day use of tongues as a prayer language or the practice of slaying in the spirit are just some examples of this. People build their whole theology around experiences often to the disregard of scripture. There is great danger in allowing your experience to eclipse the authority of the written word of God. As I've said before, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He can give you a wonderful, bright experience that makes you feel warm and fuzzy and like you visited heaven, but indeed you have faced Satan. He can fool you. That's the danger. You start living by your experiences, you can be easily misguided. And so we need to be focused on the word and guided by the word. So in Titus 2, we see six compelling reasons why you must not disregard the authority that comes with the faithful preaching of God's word. The faithful preacher brings you the word of God. The faithful preacher teaches you the word of God. The faithful preacher exhorts you to believe and obey the word of God. The faithful preacher reproves you to help you become obedient to the word of God. The faithful preacher ministers with God's authority. The faithful preacher ministers with God's voice. Now we began this message uh, by, by just noting how crucial faith is to our submission to the Word of God. Don't neglect that. That is a faith. Submission to the Word of God is a faith act. It is exercising faith. And I want to conclude by noting how crucial humility is to our submission to the Word of God. Again, by adapting uh, some helpful words of Charles Spurgeon. He commented that, and I quote, We are never so weak as when we think we are strong. And never so strong as when we know we are weak and look out of ourselves to our God. Now, adapting that, we can say this. We are never so foolish as when we think we are wise and never so wise as when we know we are foolish and look beyond ourselves to the infinite wisdom of God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we need your wisdom. Lord, on our own, we're foolish and disobedient. Lord, the, your word tells us that the one who goes his own way leads to death. 
And yet that one goes thinking that he is headed towards life. Lord, do your work in us. Teach us. Tune our hearts to obey your word. No matter where each soul is this morning. Or perhaps some need to become obedient to the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. Perhaps there are others, Lord, who need to be encouraged to believe and obey. And I just ask, Lord, that you would, you would minister to them and help me to minister to them. Help us to minister to one another, to encourage one another to love and good deeds. And Lord, for those that are, that are walking the way of disobedience, perhaps something not even known to anybody but themselves, I just ask, Lord, that through your spirit, you would, Lord, reprove them, show them where they are in error, and Lord, call them to obedience, call them to repentance and pursuing a life there to, to accept the word of God and not trust in our own, our own ability, our own understanding. And Lord, grant us, Lord, humility, the humility that's needed just to trust your word, especially in times where we think, we might know better, but it is at those moments we must be aware that when we think we're smart, we are being foolish. Help us, Lord, to be completely dependent on your word for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at Medina bible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.